Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo at Village Global. I'm here today with my co-host Ian Cinnamon, EIR and investor here at Village. And today we have a very special guest. Our guest today is Josh Wolf. Josh is managing partner and co-founder at Lux Capital, a multi-stage venture firm based out of New York City and Menlo Park with 4 billion AUM. Josh invests in deep tech companies that are turning science fiction into science fact, ranging from space and advanced manufacturing to biotechnology and defense. Josh, welcome to the show. Great to be with you guys. How are you doing? Great. Doing um, great. We're lucky to have you. So Josh, at Lux, you've backed multiple companies that either work directly with the US government or enable America's strategic cap- capabilities like Andro, Hadrian, Applied Intuition, and others. What drives you and why is that important to you? Well, I think each one of those companies, first and foremost, has a founder who has some sort of technical insight, some inspiration that some existing way of doing something is inferior a confidence and a certain near certitude that they're going to be able to do it better and uh, a mission that they want to put technology in the hands of the women and men that are on the front lines, fighting adversaries that are at once growing, revanchist, manipulative, deceitful, and uh, that it's a virtue to be able to defend the liberal democracy of the West and use technology at the forefront to be able to do that. That's great. When you think about a lot of the companies that uh, you just named, the companies that you back, the companies that you focus on, um, and you think about uh, what are the important problems that they're solving, uh, especially with regards to the West and the United States, what are the particular issues or areas that you're most focused on? What's keeping you up at night worried? What are you hoping that companies are trying to solve? Well, each of those companies, when you look at, you know, whether it's Anderil or Hadrian or Saildrone or Varder or Applied are solving different uh, aspects. Some of those companies started with a direct, overt, and sole interest in uh, being a tech supplier to the Pentagon, DoD, US, and our allies. Others started with a different mission and then realized or were told or asked by the government to, to get involved in work that was um, useful, strategic, beneficial. So a- Andrel is the one pure play company. I think that there was a, a fascinating founding moment where they decided we are not going to be a one-end sort of like Palantir where we're going to make technology that could be used by corporate and defense, uh, nor are we going to be the apologists saying, hey, we're going to make technology and not sure you know, how our customers are going to use it and sort of dance around this ethical line. They were very overt. They said, look, we're going to be making technologies. Those technologies are solely for the service of US Army, Marines, Air Force, Coast Guard, et cetera, uh, Pentagon, and our allies. And you have to be comfortable as an investor that some of these technologies may be used in kill chain. And that's a very odd thing to be asked and consider. And so that was a uh, a rare formation of a company that was exclusively focused on being one of the next great defense primes. There are lots of companies that want to be subprimes, that want to develop technology and partner with Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, et cetera. And Andrew, I think over time, will do that in some domains. But in other domains, they decided we are not going to be a cost plus contractor. We're not going to you know, raise money and then try to get some small contract and, you know, play the games that the Bellway Bandits have played. Instead, we're going to rely on billionaires and large funds like Lux and others that are going to support us, put the equity in and, and ultimately develop technologies and showcase them and then win competitive contracts. So it's a, it's a very different mindset. Um, it's one that is singularly and solely focused on defense with no interest 
or business plan or aspiration or hedge to say we're going to you know focus on commercial markets or things that are ancillary. And they started with one key uh, set of technologies for base protection, which itself was a confluence of radar and lidar and optics and communications. Uh, being able to put sentry towers uh, all over the place. And then uh, they have a whole long portfolio now of products that range from uh, aerial detection and drones, battlefield management, where you're able to synthesize different sensors and different platforms uh, into this advanced battlefield management system. Uh, They've got uh, large counter UAS, so counter drone systems. And those are very important because what started with fleets of cheap off-the-shelf PJI drones that ISIS or Syrian fighters were uh, strapping, you know, small bombs, and basically doing suicide missions with the drones, uh, have now evolved into things that you might have seen in like the Armenia-Azerbaijan con- conflict, things that are being made by Israel or Turkey, which are these large loiter and long loiter uh, drones, maybe they're uh, you know, 20, 30 foot uh, wingspans, and they're able to stand over a target and then, you know, effectively dive bomb like a missile. So you need a counter to that. It's a different nature of an evolving threat. They're very effective weapons, uh, totally autonomous, uh, unmanned. And and so that's another area uh, where there's been big programmatic wins. There was news, uh, you know, as we talk now in February of 2022, uh, of up to a billion dollar contract for, uh, for Anduril uh, with US SOCOM specifically for that. Uh, and then there's acquisitions that they're beginning to make as a company, which I think is fascinating. And one that is going to be exactly what a great company with momentum is going to do, building uh, a war chest of cash, using its growing stock currency to be able to get people uh, really along for the ride. You know, the last time you saw this really was somebody like Henry Singleton with Teledyne, uh, making very shrewd acquisitions and building a great defense contractor over time. Uh, they've done this now with three or four. The most recent uh, being announced was Dive Technologies, which is subsea um, autonomous systems, which uh, you know is a, a different front of warfare and defense. And uh, they've got things in uh, optoelectronics, things in aerial launch. And so it really is an exciting platform and portfolio of both amazing cutting edge technologies, integrating with software, and then most importantly, really smart, relatively young entrepreneurs and engineers that have great ambitions and are very patriotic about the mission and, and the threat set. So that's Andrew. When you look at somebody like Applied Intuition, when you look at somebody like SailDrone, uh, those are companies that really started with a different focus. They, uh, in Applied Intuition's focus, it was really, can we be the leader in helping all the other OEMs and automotive players that are getting into autonomy to be able to do real-time simulations, train their vehicles, uh, have best of breed, and really just focus on that. Turns out that that same uh, software, technology, AI, ML that's being used for those processes is very applicable to things that the military wants to do increasingly to put people out of harm's way and, and have machines uh, controlled by central systems. So that was an area where Applied has now proven best in class and is being adopted by the military. In Drone's case, you had a totally uh, uh, research-driven, mission-driven, but research-driven uh, organization focused on NOAA, National Oceanographic Association, looking at fisheries, overfishing, uh, looking at environmental protection, weather management, better prediction of weather systems. Uh, we have assets, vehicles, uh, sail drones that have been the first in uh, man's history to fly into the center of a hurricane and record what was happening with both um, bathymetric information sensors and, of course, video and report that back, which was totally stunning. But it turns out that having a fleet of autonomous drones is exactly what the Navy and uh, the US Navy and our allies are looking for as you have fleet transformation going from very large scale aircraft carriers that are very expensive 
And uh, depending on what the current nature of the theater of war is, maybe less relevant than having very nimble, fast uh, vessels that can both carry payloads, carry information, relay them, set up uh, redundant sensor networks, um, you know, be sort of discrete. Um, and so, so those are two companies where they started with commercial interests and the capabilities that they developed were very valuable for the defense market. Uh, Hadrian is really interesting because what they're really focused on is saying, look, there's this growing boom in aerospace and you have large companies and you have small companies. And whether you are a blue origin or SpaceX or you're a small long tail of somebody that's starting up, even a company like Varda, which is you know going to be very relevant for aerospace and defense, but particularly in space doing manufacturing, whether you're a company like Kaimeta that is doing satellite communications, uh, also for first responders and uh, mission critical military applications to have you know abundant bandwidth beaming down from uh, from the, from space. All these people need to manufacture and forge, and the current infrastructure and manufacturing base is roughly three thousand mom and pop shops around the country. Uh, many of these family owned. Uh, some of them, you know, long and reliable, but very inefficient, uh, labor-driven, old-school uh, equipment, uh, really haven't been updated in a long time. Chris Power, who runs that, is just absolutely incredible. Really private equity mindset, a skeptic at heart, which I love, a great technologist, and has been on an absolute tear of momentum recruiting some of the very best people from SpaceX, uh, in particular, people that ran the rocket manufacturing and the forging program for a lot of the, uh, uh, for, for Dragon and the rockets. And uh, he's building the machine that builds the machine where the product really is the factory. And I think it's going to capture a significant portion of market share for new aerospace and defense and be sort of our own domestic TSMC for that industry. So very excited about that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're really excited to, to be back and Chris alongside you. What, one of the things that you mentioned when you're talking about Enderil was, you know, getting involved in a company that was taking place in the kill chain. Could you first define what, what do you mean by that for those who don't know? And then could you say a little bit more of you know how you think that investor sentiment and entrepreneurs' interest is evolving in taking taking place in the kill chain? So uh, you know this is really something that uh, has nuance to it, but it at root is whether there's offense or defense. We were never interested in funding things that you know were offensive weapons. Um, we're only interested in really providing defense. Now, sometimes in defense, and again, you can look at this as sort of two sides of a coin, but you may have a commander that says there's a terrorist. The terrorist is right now walking towards a school building and tends to either blow himself up or, or children or, um, or shoot up a, a mosque or a church. And with that information, uh, a commander, a human in a loop is going to make a decision to say in sort of the God's decision um, that they're going to take a direct action. That direct action may be to capture or kill an enemy. And so uh, there's technology at every facet of that. And uh, we really view it as a benevolent moral thing that if you can discriminate between a, you know, a father that is coming back from the fields with a pickaxe over his shoulder and a terrorist with known malintent that's coming with an AK-47 over his shoulder, you know, those are two very dis different uh, situations that you want to discriminate against. And so technology has a role, the more precise, uh, the more, uh, the higher the resolution, our technology, uh, arguably the more moral and ethical the decisions can be, you know, when you had very imprecise, very large scale, uh, defense systems, you know, you would drop a bomb and, and, you know, lots of innocent civilians would, would, would die and, and it would be awful and tragic. And I think that the more precise you can target a vehicle or a building or, communication infrastructure or energy source of supply or whatever you need to thwart an active offensive threat from an enemy is is something where you know you're you're involved there along the chain i think what has changed is you've really had a generation that i would consider i'm just going to arbitrarily mark around 2000 that grew 
either disinterested, indifferent, possibly negative about the idea of working on technology for defense. And part of that is you had a jingoistic president in, in Bush too. Uh, you had a more you know peaceful, benevolent outreach of Obama, but you had you know drone strikes and innocent deaths. Uh, you had a super you know far right jingoistic uh, Trump, and and a lot of people just looked at this and were like, is the, are these the administrations? Are these the American values that you know you grew up standing for? And you contrast that with the 1980s, where you had um, lots of immigrants coming from Russia, in particular, who were escaping you know atrocities or or, or suppression, uh, surveillance. Uh, you know Germany as well, West Germany, uh, East Germany. And, and, you, and you saw this flood of people in the 80s that were mathematicians, scientists, physicists that really wanted to work on great, noble things, and they wanted to do it in service of this country that was providing safe haven for them. And so I think, I think we lost that. We lost that narrative for you know, a good generation. You also had people that were coming as immigrants, not as emigres fleeing their country, but as seeing America as a place where, hey, we can go start a company, get some equity, make it rich, come back. You know, And, um, and so there was sort of a transient, almost tourist-like culture. Uh, in the bases, you know, historically in, in Silicon Valley and Route 128 in Cambridge and in New York and elsewhere. Uh, and now something has changed. It may be that uh, the prior threats, whether it was of um, Al-Qaeda uh, or violent extremists or um, Islamic jihadism or terrorism, was too diffuse and too abstract for many people. But I, I think that there are rising threats now, whether it's Russia uh, interfering with elections and democracy and um, sowing seeds of dissent, you know, there are measures somewhere between 50 and 80% of a lot of the social media activity, particularly on topics like uh, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and other things that cause great divisiveness between people that are American citizens uh, are being conducted as information operations by foreigners. When you look at China, you know uh, China is an amazing country. Chinese people are amazing people. Uh, the CCP uh, is an authoritarian uh, regime and, and uh, bordering on totalitarianism. And uh, it is using technology in the antithetical way that uh, the uh, liberal democracies of the West are. It is much more about surveillance and control and suppression, uh, impl- implementation of uh, social currencies where, you know, you say the right thing, you get social credit. You say the wrong thing, you can be thrown into prison. You've got a million plus uh, Uyghur Muslims that are being put into concentration camps. And I grew up, in, I'm an atheist Jew, every Thing that I ever heard at the dinner table on Friday nights was never again, you know, and remembering the Holocaust and, and looking at the kind of oppression that, you know, the world for um, largely either indifferent or economic reasons, you know, people are saying it's below my line. They don't care. I think it's just, I think it's th- that itself, you know, in, in, indifference to injustice is the gate to hell. So you have a situation, particularly in China and the CCP, where Chinese people, not bad, China, not bad, CCP, quite dangerous. And you should have people on the left that are looking at this and saying, uh, we've got you know human rights abuses and atrocities. We've got environmental abuses, and as much as China might jawbone and talk about a transition to green energy, they're the largest coal producer in the world. You've got people on the right that might be concerned about bellicose or belligerent actions. People that uh, might be concerned about Taiwan. People that might be concerned about IP theft, currency manipulation. You know, three four percent of our outstanding treasuries. Uh, and so uh, you see a situation where I think people are starting to see that there is a threat and that those threats in particular, Russia and China, but elsewhere, are using technology, in many cases, our own technology against us. And they see an opportunity to sort of, you know, defend the homeland and take the fight. Right. And as you alluded to, technology plays a role in this in, in, in a completely unprecedented way. A couple of months ago, Jacob Holberg uh, published a book that was very influential called The, the Wires of War. And Jacob argued that we are already in a war with uh, Russia and China. Do you agree with that framing? 
I, I do. Uh, you know, w- it's not a kinetic war. Um, people are not being shot directly. They're not being killed. Uh, you know, battlefields are different domains. And so, uh, you know, let's take a few of them. Cyber, there's no question. Um, you know, you've got uh, uh, cyber attacks coming from Russia that are you know, directed in many cases, in many cases by Putin, uh, or certainly condoned. Uh, same thing with China, uh, very sophisticated, you know, systems to exploit. Uh, we already talked about the information operations to sow seeds of dissent. You know, Germany in uh, in particular, I think, was particularly susceptible and vulnerable if we were sitting around as evil geniuses in a Putin war room and decided, okay, how do we get more influence over uh, Europe? You know, do we need to invade? No. All you need to do is uh, foment dissent against nuclear power in Germany. Uh, let's give fuel and money and uh, protest promotion to the rise of the Green Party and let the internal populace, you know, basically shut down nuclear. Once they do that, uh, they'll be dependent upon Nord 2 and natural gas, and Russia will have a grip, you know, basically on Western Europe. I think it was a beautiful, brilliant, and evil coup, but it was one that, you know, was done without um, firing a shot or sending a, a single troop. So I think the information domain, uh, which includes cyber, is is very sophisticated um, exploitation of social media, uh, exploitation of certain narratives, uh, letting us turn you know ourselves on ourselves is is one of the greatest tactics throughout you know back from Sun Tzu. So so that's one domain which is the information operations and cyber. Another is um, uh, financial, and uh, you know uh, we were not as intertwined financially uh, really at all with Russia during the Cold War. Uh, nobody was buying you know any products. The only arguably competitive Russian products that you had were the ones that had to compete on a global stage, which was, you know, a MiG fighter jet and an AK-47, but you weren't buying toasters or Tata cars or, or lots of cars, you know, or pretty much any other consumer product because they just weren't competitive. Uh, China, you know, is the um, main uh, manufacturer and factory for, you know, the vast majority of the world. And um, it's a significantly intertwined economic partner. Um, it's hard to undo. They own vast amounts of our treasuries and extra trillion dollars of our $28 trillion of outstanding debt. Uh, so while not a huge percentage, a, a significant potential mover. Uh, so you've got the economic domain and interdependency. You increasingly have censorship uh, on sort of the soft power side. I think that there are opportunities there, but there certainly are challenges where historically the U.S. would export, you know, media, music, MTV, Hollywood. Today, many of those things are suppressed if they are saying the wrong thing. Uh, you know, you've got Hollywood actors like John Cena taking a knee and pledging fealty to China, apologizing in Chinese uh, for calling Taiwan a country. You've got uh, Kodak and Instagram removing, you know, pictures and images of uh, Xinjiang province where the Uyghurs are being held in concentration camps and saying that it was an Orwellian dystopian nightmare and being forced to remove those, you know, online. So, so there's foreign countries that because of economic influence and threat of not distributing goods or products, NBA, of course, you know, being a, a prominent other example, um, you know, significant leverage over the U.S. And, and ultimately the values and the cultures and the things that we say and believe. Um, and then you've got space, which I think is a, a huge and important domain. You know, the U.S. and Russia had great uh, diplomatic and scientific ties with the International Space Station. Uh, now, Russia was the first to announce that they're going to be pulling out of the ISS over the next two years. Uh, they're going to be you know, developing their own systems. China already has their own uh, space station that they're launching different modular parts to. U.S. will be playing a little bit of catch up there. U.S. did approach Russia about doing a joint lunar base. Russia said, no, thank you. We're going to do it with China. And so, you know, there are all kinds of alliances and allegiances that are in a shifting, you know, sort of uh, centripetal force up up above. There's a lot of space assets and satellites that are up there. There's increasing odds that 
while China has already, you know, blown up its own weather satellite to show a kinetic capability in space, and Russia has blown up its own satellite from ground to show, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, its ability to blow up somebody else's satellite. Uh, there's increasing risk that uh, there's an accident, that there's debris, uh, that something is uh, framed as an accident when it was intentional. And so I think there's going to be a lot of surveillance, uh, sabotage, uh, you know, different technological uh, assets up in space to both, you know, detect and and deceive, um, and then ultimately perform kinetic action. So, so that's another domain where I think we are increasingly at war, and it's you know straight out of science fiction, uh, sort of Star Wars. And then you've got you know uh, traditional air, land, and sea, and um, you know China would like to remove uh, influence from Taiwan. So you can think of it as a full black a fullback that's sort of blocking its ability to project power into the Pacific Ocean. Um, U.S. and allies would prefer to keep that contained. Uh, you've got, you know, serious economic interests, of course, with TSMC on the island and uh, sort of late stage uh, scramble for the U.S. to rebuild the semiconductor manufacturing facility, along with like one of our companies, Resilience, where we're trying to rebuild uh, drug and, and biological manufacturing capabilities here domestically. So uh, there's a lot of conflict and a lot of uh, very clever moves that have happened over the past 10, certainly 20 years to gain leverage over the United States. And uh, that's going to require, you know, a coordinated effort, um, better technologies, better leverage uh, to be able to push back. I think that's an incredible perspective. One thing I wanted to hone in on a little bit there was your commentary on space um, and how it's effectively another domain of war that we're currently in. I'm curious how you would characterize uh, what you just described versus the idea that we're currently in a space race or we might need to stimulate another space race in order to kind of further increase the innovation that's happening in the US in that domain. Um, we've seen a lot of great uh, venture-backed companies popping up that are trying to further uh, space and America's um, kind of dominance in that region. Everything from uh, Hadrian that we talked about before, where we're co-investing with you, or another co-investment, Epsilon 3. But I'm curious uh, how you think we kind of uh, invigorate the US venture companies and the West to really take space seriously and not just see it as something that is uh, this science fiction pie in the sky type uh, area. So um, here's where uh, I will surprise you because as you know, I am quite critical of Elon when it comes to Tesla. Uh, but I think what he's done with SpaceX is extraordinary, uh, not only in the execution of what they've done, um, you know, and there's issues about, you know, the, the total addressable market on the launch cost and the need for Starlink and all this kind of stuff. But the most important thing that SpaceX has done is truly inspired a generation of great engineers. Um, you know, a lot of engineers over the past 20 years sort of took the mantle from computer science and, you know, called themselves software engineers, but like hard engineers that are working on physics and plasma and um, uh, thermal materials and um, acoustic and electro-optical systems. I mean, these are very sophisticated long-trained, uh, deeply technical people. Many of them had interests in rocketry. Some of them had interests in automotive racing, uh, but there's an ethos of basically wanting to make machines, uh, control them and have them go fast uh, to you know, uh, uh, compete. Uh, and so uh, everyone that I have made, uh, met that has come out of SpaceX, and as you know, Adrian has, uh, has hired a lot of folks from there, Will Brewey and, and Delian and the founders of Art have hired an incredible group of people from SpaceX. Almost all of our companies that are touching space in some way have really trained at SpaceX, and and SpaceX, I think, truly has a um, a culture driven by Elon and ultimately by Gwen of very high expectations. We're going to do more than anybody thinks possible with less than anybody thinks possible. Mission critical kind of things. Uh, critics, not in the same way of you know Tesla, but um, 
so, so I really think that, that Elon has done a tremendous job. The visuals that you see of uh, rockets launching or landing, I think, I think that is inspiring. And, uh, and, and it's been done with style and, and, and panache and, and the coolness that I think has reinvigorated uh, you know, broad swath of American interest in designing space systems. So, so that to me feels way more important than any sort of patriotic jingoistic, you know, we got to be the Russians to space kind of thing. Um, I think mostly it has been intrinsic of, um, Hey, we're going to be the upstarts here and we're going to take on, you know, the old Lockheeds and Raytheons and orbitals and, uh, Aerojet rocketdynes and, and, uh, build better systems. And so, you know, super smart people that are, are really coming out of there. And I, I, you know, very publicly loudly praise Elon for um, inspiring, I think, a generation. That's that's great. Um, I, I think that's great to be able to also see the nuance between, you know, how Elon thinks about Tesla versus uh, SpaceX and kind of the execution there. So in the same way that you can argue that SpaceX and the style and the way they do these launches and the kind of culture of new engineers that they put out has almost created a Sputnik moment to wake up uh, a generation to be more excited about it. To bring this back a little bit to um, China and what you were saying earlier and the dangers of the CCP, do you think we need some similar Sputnik type moment to wake people up uh, to, again, not the dangers of China, China's an amazing place, but specifically of the CCP. And um, on our side, we're seeing you know a tremendous amount of money, VC funding, flowing between the US and China. We're seeing apps like TikTok that are potentially under uh, you know, control or influenced by the CCP becoming pervasive in the US. And it seems like, you know, people might raise a fuss about this and talk about it, but how much action is really being taken to change that and confront that head on? Would be curious to get your take there. I think that there is a growing awareness. You know, there are like uh kooky far right people, you know, that I think, you know, are very anti-China. I think it has to be a very nuanced thing uh, that it really specifically is about the government right now, the the Chinese Communist Party. You know, if if one were to fully, you know, take the counter view, which I think is important in understanding situation, uh, rather than being just you know totally polar, uh, you know, you have a billion people that have been lifted out of poverty, and you have a uh, hundred million-ish uh, uh, people that are along the coasts. Um, that uh, you know, sort of live in the Shanghai's and Beijing's, and akin to, you know, the way we do in New York and elsewhere. And so the, the hundreds of millions of people there uh, have been really uh, asymmetrically and disproportionately benefited. And I think she and the CCP realize that for them to stay in power, it really depends on the uh, support of the masses that are still in rural areas. And so right now you're seeing a, a sort of you know situation where you're going from a few hundred dollars of of GDP per capita to you know nine thousand uh, upwards to you know twenty thousand or so, uh, and you know we're in the U.S. at I don't know forty or fifty thousand. So there's still a way for China to go. One could argue until you have a substantive middle class, and one could say that what she is doing right now is sort of a rational engineered program over the next generation to spread wealth, uh, have people have true sense of ownership over property and cars and apartments and the economy, and and then maybe you see a democracy. That would be the optimistic view. Or, or not a democracy, but certainly a more uh, liberal uh, communist culture. Uh, what you've seen in the past few years, which again, may be a temporary thing or maybe uh, uh, symptomatic of something much more serious, is uh, a total lockdown. A lockdown as she seeks to be ruler for life, which will you know basically come to a head in the fall of this year of 2022. 
a uh, permissiveness to see the capitalization of technology companies, web companies, e-commerce companies, education companies, and then the relatively rapid decapitation of their leaders um, and a redirection of the not so invisible hand. Uh, it is a very visible hand that has said, okay, you know, people are not going to be making money there anymore, or certainly not as much money anymore. And that includes, you know, domestic VCs. And if you've ever heard, you know, Neil Shen from Sequoia, you know, put on the spot by, I think it was The Economist years ago, it was just such an awkward moment because you can't win answering these questions of, you know, do you feel uncomfortable with the ethical abuses or whatever? I mean, it's, you are completely served at the pleasure, you know, of the CCP. And so uh, the next wave where the visible hand is directing capital to flow is in many of the things that Lux and you and others fund, which is in a lot of the deep tech uh, cutting edge areas. So semiconductors, biotech, uh, technologies for defense, uh, that is what will be celebrated uh, culturally. It'll be uh, directed you know, formally with uh, five-year programs. You already see, amazingly, I forget the name of the show, but there's a 40-episode uh, Netflix equivalent series in China. It is a you know uh, highly rated widely watched show about a U.S. semiconductor engineer who came back to China and basically decided to rebuild or build up, you know, the most competitive uh, semiconductor company in the world. I mean, that's just astounding that they had the foresight to create a fictional narrative as propaganda to indoctrinate the people of this and create, you know, new heroes. I've always said that as a country and as a culture, you get what you celebrate. And when they're celebrating, you know, uh, uh, um, the symbolism of a semiconductor engineer who came from the U.S. and then decided to, you know, patriotically, you know, rebuild uh, the great uh, soul of the new machine, the new chips, you know, for the future of China. And we're celebrating, you know, Kanye and Kim Kardashian. It's just, it's ridiculous. We're at a disadvantage. So uh, I, I do think more attention has to go on human rights abuses. I think that there should be zero tolerance, you know, when we see atrocities around the world. It doesn't. It doesn't count. The U.S. is is imperfect. We are fallible. Um, we have a stained history. Uh, we have a gross and disgusting history of slavery, of abuses against women, uh, gay. I mean, every marginalized group. And the good thing is, over time, those groups have gained more rights and and more recognition that's deserved. Um, but uh, you know, anytime you see uh, you know a totalitarian government suppressing and you know systematically, you know whether it's a uh, uh, imprisoning, detaining, killing, sterilizing, uh, quote unquote, re-educating. You can look at the arc of what started as, quote, political protesters put in prison by the Nazi regime in the 30s, but then became larger and larger until it was a systematic annihilation of an entire group of people, the, you know, the Jews. So I, th I think more attention is needed. Uh, I think at the moment, it's probably a great opportunity for the left and the right to unify, if not with a strategy around China, certainly around an attitude around China, uh, which is probably a you know the latter being a prerequisite for the former. Right, and Josh, how, to what extent do you see the rise of nihilism in this the general societal malaise that we've seen in the United States over the last couple of years, leading for us to to not take these problems seriously? You 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 might have seen this. There was a survey a couple of months ago that asked how Americans uh, feel optimistic about their future, and we've had, for the highest time ever, the majority of people thinking that their children will be worse off than than they are, putting the U.S. as the fifth most uh, pessimistic country on the planet. Do you think that these are interconnected at all? How how, how do you look at these? I think that there has been apathy and uh, indifference. I think there's been a focus on the individual about self-aggrandizement. I think, you know, social media and media have all allowed people to, you know, 
just be hyper self-promotional about, you know, being celebrities and being famous for being famous and that kind of stuff. And, and like I said, you get the culture you celebrate and that's what we've celebrated. You know, the great generation or the greatest generation, which was World War II. And, you know, you had people that were entirely shifting and reimagining and rebuilding American industry, whether it was, you know, automotive, air, you had women entering the workforce. Um, there was just an amazing time of coming together in solidarity in the face of a, you know, existential threat of a common enemy. When you go back through the history of the United States, maybe it's a bit cynical, but it is a, a roughly accurate observation that since the Mexican-American War, you know, following the Civil War, we were reunited. Every time we had a great power conflict of some sort, the country came together. And uh, it's cynical in that, you know, we sort of only come together in the presence of a third common enemy. When World War II had abated, you had the roaring 20s, everything was great, you know, money's flowing, liquor's flowing, despite prohibition, but you also have the rise of the KKK. Uh, and so during those moments of domestic peace against an external enemy, we end up really turning on each other. Um, that would be abated by World War II and the Korean War come together again. Uh, we turn on each other again. And then, you know, Vietnam, which was really a, a flawed and failed war in many ways. Uh, and then we'd be reunited against, against, you know, the Cuba missile crisis and um, Cold War and, you know, duck and cover and threats of, you know, Russian bombs and mutually assured destruction and nuclear. Uh, then we had the raging 90s, you know, of uh, com excess and everything was fine. And, uh, and then 2001, September 11th happened. And that was a very diffuse, you know, not necessarily hegemon. It was a, it was a fearful terror induced uh, collective. Uh, I think the one thing that we started to celebrate again, there was a lot of people that sort of used to protest soldiers, you know, particularly post-Vietnam. Um, and, and I think there was an embrace of just American heroes and women and men on the front lines. So that was sort of a virtuous thing. Uh, but we haven't really had a big common third enemy. And so I think that's quite important. When you look at the domestic issues, again, in self-interest, politicians and media have done a wonderful job in serving their own interests to divide and conquer. And so we went from having a national hearth or a fireplace that we gather around channel 247, ABC, NBC, CBS, into an infinite number of channels. Um, you know, that's a good thing, more expression of democracy. It's a bad thing in that everybody ended up in their own little iPod, people just hearing the echo chambers of what they want to hear. Uh, people want community, they want meaning, they want purpose, they would find it in their political tribes. And so they became increasingly isolated to the other side. You know, I have a situation where half the country thinks that the other half of the country is a total idiot. The other half thinks the exact same thing. And in many cases, they think not only the idiots, but that they're actually evil. You know, it was amazing stat thinking about the politicization of this. Uh, 53% of Republicans, 56% of Democrats got their flu shot before COVID um, in 2019, 20, going into 2020 flu shot. And then uh, this year so far, I think it's 40% of Republicans and 68% of Democrats either have gotten or intend to get. So it's the idea of getting your flu shot has now been conflated with COVID which has been conflated with this idea of like government control and some political aspect of it. And so we are easily influenced, very tribal, very heavily polarized. And, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's tragic, but by the way, one other dimension that we didn't talk about before, which I failed to mention was, was health. And obviously the origins of COVID forgetting about any sort of conspiratorial thing of lab leak or whatever, but, you know, came from China and probably the greatest scourge on, uh, on us society right now is the epidemic in opioids and the flooding of fentanyl, which very much mirrors almost a, uh, almost a snarky evil uh, retribution that the Chinese had from the opium wars. So I think these are all things where there's an opportunity for a leader to come point out, you know, our differences, point out 
those outside uh, outside the country that have ill intent and tend to do us harm and how we need to rally around you know some basic things and we can fight about all the other stuff you can love the the nfl and you know like the jets or hate the giants uh but you know we got to be on the steam league here in the united states so i i'm actually optimistic when i hear these uh reports that you know um uh domestic tension is at all time highs or um you know, nihilism is at all time highs or people feel despondent because I feel like it, it's likely to get better, not worse. Um, there is growing concern I have around the growing normalization, books being published, op-eds being written, um, maybe in light of the anniversary of Jan 6, insurrection, uh, Trump's direction, but the, you know, talk of civil war. And while I don't think we will actually have a civil war because the, you know, very complex, uh, diffuse, both geographic and other uh, integrated you know, we're not gonna have a north-south civil war, but I but I do see a situation I've been persuaded or convinced by that is probably more akin to the Northern Ireland troubles, where you will have a long period of sustained low-level conflict, meaning, you know, domestic terrorism, bombings, kidnappings, killings, in some cases conflated with companies that people patronize, some resulting in economic fear to, you know, go on a certain airline or go to a certain Walmart or something like that, go to certain restaurants like Chick-fil-A or not. And I, I think that's gonna be a really sad thing. And eventually, you know, uh, what ended that was, you know, very strong leadership, some external third party intervention. Um, and hopefully we, we don't see, you know, pictures of children dying and people saying enough is enough, but I, I worry about that domestically. Um, hundred percent makes sense. So to bring this home a little bit, if you are one of our listeners and you're thinking about the future of the West, the future of America, Western values, um, and then especially if you're an entrepreneur or a technologist wanting to help build tools or utilities to solve for a lot of the things that we discussed, what would be your recommendation to our listeners? Well, uh, this is a mix of history, the past, you know, current events, the present, and uh, technology and science, which I think is the future. And so I would encourage people, you know, I was not a big history buff when I was young. Um, as cliched as, as it is, you know, those that don't know history are condemned to repeat it, but many things are constant. Um, so they repeat and, and while technologies change and businesses change and markets change, human nature is a constant conflict, um, opportunities where people are seeking leverage influence, just sort of studying history and seeing where things repeat and being able to identify those, um, current events, being aware of what's going on in the world, having a healthy dose of a healthy dose of skepticism, you know, from the varied sources that we have so that, you know, people do not take everything at face value, understand there are nuanced, nuanced points of view and try to get what someone calls sort of a consilience of inductions, you know, getting multiple data sources, different viewpoints. And then when you see something that is highly probable to be true, you know, giving it more credence, that itself is a domestic education thing. Unfortunately, you know, the current news has been perfectly algorithmically engineered to, you know, induce fear, anger, uh, joy, surprise, whatever, and just, you know, keep hitting you like a, uh, a Pavlovian dog or a Skinner rat in a cage uh, or a pigeon in a cage. And so, um, yeah, be, be skeptical, but engaged in present current affairs. And then the future is for somebody that really sees the opportunity. And there is an opportunity that both, uh, I think people are going to make enormous fortunes in, in pursuing this because the tailwinds of demand are there domestically and abroad. And I think that there's a great feeling of, of moral purpose that, uh, you might work on a technology that ends up saving lives, you know, is the same way that we feel when we fund a cutting edge microscope that is discovering drugs or a cutting edge pharma or biotech company that is making those drugs. 
to know that, you know, an entire stadium worth of people might be saved because of that science that was funded and advanced and de-risked, on, you know, is, is it, it's what we call matter that matters. It sounds a little bit righteous, but it feels really good. The same thing feels really good to know that there might be a conflict underway and that a technology that you funded can help to thwart or stop that conflict or save lives. And so, yeah, I would encourage people, open your eyes, look around, read history, look at current events, and then get involved in the things that you think can shape history in the or the future really in the in the, in the right direction awesome josh this is a, a great note to end on we we really appreciate having you here today my pleasure really good to be with you guys if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you check us out at villageglobal.vc